teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Let's go to the Word of God. And before we go to the Word of God, let's go to Him in prayer that He would bless His Word. Yeah, we are indeed a privileged people, a blessed people, Lord, a grateful people. Thank you so much for all that you have done and provided for us. Thank you for this time of year to reflect and celebrate your humility, Lord Jesus, in coming to become a man. Just the, the wonder and peering into that manger and that you being there, God Almighty, as a baby. Or it staggers, uh, staggers the imagination. It's, it's beyond what we can comprehend. And we're so grateful for your humility and not only coming to become man, but giving yourself on our behalf to suffer the wrath of the Father so that we might be saved. Lord, I pray that you would be honored through your word as it's proclaimed. Help me, Lord, to clearly and accurately uh, preach it, Lord, and that be your words and not mine. Thank you for marriage. I pray, God, as a result of our time together, you would strengthen our marriages so that they would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, on their (coughs) wedding day, it's the hope of every couple, right, to have an enduring, long-lasting marriage. Um, But it seems to be something harder to achieve these days. So when we hear about a marriage that's gone on for a long time, we are um, uh, blessed by that. We, are, we take notice of that. Uh, I read this week of a couple in England, Karam and Katari Chand, who will be celebrating their 88th wedding anniversary next month. Amazing. They're just three years shy of the longest marriage on record, which is 91 years. Some of you are going, oh man, 91, that's a long... 91 years, that's amazing. Has anybody here been married for more than 50 years or celebrating your 50th? We've got a few here. How about, this is your, you just celebrated your first or you're in your first year of marriage? Anybody? We had a few first hour. All right, a few newlyweds, yeah. And uh, since I found out about this, Frank and Gabriella... Happy anniversary. They were celebrated their 33rd yesterday, right? Amen. You did something real special, right? All right. Uh, This month will be my wife and our 23rd uh, toward the end of the month, actually on the 30th. So very blessed. (laughs) Marriage is indeed a a great blessing. A few years ago, I received an email. It was titled this, The Key to a Long-Lasting Marriage. It was a story about a couple. uh, They'd been married more than 60 years. And uh, they had talked about everything. They kept no secrets from one another except for one. Um, The wife had a a shoebox in the closet. And she told her husband that he was never to open it or to ask about its contents. And so, uh, you know, over the years he'd forgotten about this shoebox. But but, uh, as they were getting older, she became very sick. And and as he was looking through or or gathering her her things together, um, he noticed this shoebox. And so he took it out and he brought it before his wife and had asked her if it would be okay uh, at that point in time for, for her to share its contents. So she agreed. 
And in great anticipation, he, he opened this box and he found in it two crocheted dolls and about a couple hundred thousand dollars in cash. So he was a little bit surprised and, and he asked his wife, uh, what, what is the meaning of the contents? What, what are these things doing in here? And so she told him this. When we got married, my grandmother told me that the secret to a happy marriage was never to argue. And if I ever got angry with you, that I should keep quiet and crochet a doll. (laughs) Some of you see where this is going. So he was deeply moved by that. Uh, Just the fact that there were only two dolls in the box and that she was only angry with me twice in our entire marriage. He said to her, honey, that explains the dolls, but where did all the money come from? To which she replied, oh, that's all the money I made from selling all the dolls. (laughs) Yeah, that's about right. (laughs) One man said that all marriages are happy. It's the living together afterward that causes all the trouble. But seriously, though, marriage can be among the most blissful or the most maddening of experiences, can it? Most messages that address marriage or books that talk about marriage, they usually begin by talking about the decline in marriage, talking about how it is um, coming out of style. They talk about maybe the 40% of marriages don't even make it past the second year. Or maybe they quote statistics about there's uh, almost 10 million unwed couples in America now. More marriages experience adultery than don't. Uh, Gay marriage is becoming accepted on a state and national level. And there are just many examples in our country that are brought up of the decline in marriage. In fact, I found a website this week called unmarried.org. And its basic, don't go there, but its basic goal is to promote any alternative to marriage. But aren't these, these are the kinds of things we would expect from a nation walking away from Christ, aren't they? These trends are sobering, but... But I'm more concerned about another trend, a trend not about the attitude towards marriage outside the church, but within the church. A little over 10 years ago, noted preacher Charles Stanley uh, told his congregation of his divorce after a long separation with his wife. And and after he told of the divorce or it was announced at church, the, the church stood up and applauded. He had revealed some things about the marriage and uh, the difficulties over the course of time. But, you know, I don't know all the details of that situation. But even if it was a biblical divorce, that is not something to be applauded, but mourned. Recent surveys show that nearly one third of couples who claim the name of Christ, who, who call themselves evangelical Christians, one third of them are divorced. And more and more pastors and theologians, they they continue to expand, to to widen what constitutes a biblical divorce. Seems like there's more effort being given to justifying divorce rather than to repairing marriage. And it isn't just the issue of divorce in the church that concerns me. I'm more concerned about the condition of existing marriages within the church, within our church, within this body. Many people that I've come across or met over the years, they, they seem to have this idea that as long as they're still married, then they're, they're obeying the Lord. As long as we don't get divorced, we're in God's will, even if their marriage is in a shambles. They reason that, well, God hates divorce, right? So I, I, I'm never going to do that. They think the priority is I've got to keep my vow. And that is true. Vows are important to God. 
That is not something to dismiss. We do need to keep our vows. But, but that mindset doesn't go far enough. Keeping a promise isn't the main focus or goal of marriage. God does hate divorce. Matthew 19, 6, Jesus said, what, what God has joined together, what? Let no man separate. But is the most important issue to God that you just stay married? Is avoiding divorce the only thing he cares about? Does, doesn't he care about the condition of the marriage? Doesn't he care about, is he not concerned for how spouses treat one another, about whether or not they're helping each other to be more like Jesus? About the example that that marriage is to the world. Are we to think that living together in hostility, conflict, distance, apathy, little spiritual education, just being roommates, are, are we to think that this is better than divorce? Yes, you may be legally married, but acting and living as if divorced. Is, is God saying, yes, that relationship is totally in the tank in opposition to my word, but at least they're still married. Is that God's perspective? Saints, the, the church in America needs an overhaul, needs a transformation regarding this whole issue and understanding of marriage. And I'm burdened for, for the present marriages and the future marriages of those in this body. Many of them are in dire straits or they're headed that direction. And again, the goal isn't just to stay together. Just to have a marriage that, that where we don't get divorced, we don't separate, we don't leave one another. That, that's not the primary goal. We need to experience marriage how God designed it. God created marriage for more than just populating the earth. He's much to teach us through this unique relationship. And, and so Paul, as we approach this text in Ephesians 5, Paul, within this passage, peels back the curtain. And he reveals some profound truths about why God designed marriage and, and how it's to work. And I know if, we, if you could just hang with me these next few weeks and, and work with me and, and walk with me as we peel back this curtain and look behind it and get a glimpse and hopefully get a grasp of what Paul has to say about marriage. I know that it will transform your marriage. I know it. Because God's Spirit works through His Word. He made marriage, right? He made you. He made your spouse. He made your family. He understands this. And He knows exactly, exactly how we can have a marriage that honors Him. And that's actually fun. That's actually a joy. So let's take a look behind that curtain. We're going to begin in Ephesians 5, verse 15. If you could again, please stand with me in honor of the Word of God. I'm going to begin reading from Ephesians 5, verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled by the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, 
that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, I know we don't see the topic of marriage come up in this passage until verse 22, but I started back in verse 15 because this is all part of one section. It's not as if we hit verse 22 and he starts a new topic. This actually flows out of what he was talking about in verses 15 through 18. It's there, if you'll remember, that he gave these three parallel statements concerning the same idea, that that we're to not walk as unwise men but as wise, that we are not to be foolish but understand God's will that we are to not be drunk or controlled by a substance, but to be filled by God's Spirit. And then in verses 19 to 21, Paul gives the the five results, the five, the outcomes that take place as one is filled by or or controlled by the Spirit. And those are to speak to one another in song, to, to, uh, to sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord, to always be thankful in all things, and to be subject to one another. And then that last result, that fifth result being subject to one another, is is where Paul then then moves off of that and continues that thought and looking at the home. Mutual humility or or submission is not just something that's conveyed to the church. It's not just when we gather together and and we we seek to, to be subject to one another, to be humble, to serve one another. But if I'm truly being spirit filled, then that humility will extend within my home, right? It's easy to do it here. It's easy to spend a few hours or four hours like Jim likes to do, which was a great encouragement. It's easy to spend that four hours here and to uh, treat one another as we're supposed to, to be on our best behavior. But it's not so easy to do that at home with those you live with 24-7, is it? It can be a little bit of a challenge. And therefore, Paul, he devotes the largest application section in Ephesians to the toughest place imaginable, imaginable to live out the gospel, and that is our homes. That is before someone else. So he addresses husbands and wives, parents and children, and also slaves and masters. Because in that time period, slaves and masters were also a common um, part of the household. And what's unique here is Paul gives this instruction, compared to the instruction that's given uh, by Greek and Jewish cultures of his day, here Paul actually gives instruction and direction not only to those who are under authority, but also to the ones in authority. He talks to both because God holds both accountable to submit in humility or to lead in humility. And so here in 5.22 through 6.9, there are several practical applications of being subject to one another. And Paul begins in verse 22. Every translation, if you look there, probably says, wives, be subject or be submissive to your own husbands. Those two words, be subject, aren't actually in verse 22. If you look at your translation, they're probably in italics, right? That doesn't mean that they're adding to the Word of God, but they're, they're trying to, to make it clear and, and, and readable and understandable as to what Paul is directing his attention towards. But actually, if you look at verse 21 and 22, it would more literally read like this. 
being subject to one another in the fear of Christ, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. See, Paul is simply continuing in verse 22 the thought that he began in verse 21. And the first application that he deals with in this being subject to one another is the primary relationship in the home, husband and wife. And in fact, these 12 verses are the longest treatment, the longest statement on marriage given in the New Testament. And as we give attention to these verses over the next few weeks, brothers and sisters, I just want to remind you, God doesn't give us instruction or commands that he doesn't enable us to live out. And as we go through some things, there's going to be some things you're going, that's impossible. There's no way I could do that. Do you know what? There is through the grace of God. He doesn't give us things and then kind of laugh or, or expect us, you know, with folded arm. Oh, how come you're not doing what I said? Come on, get with it. It's not the Lord's manner. But I say, here, this is my instruction to you. This is what I'm commanding you to do. This is how I've designed marriage. And I will help you. I will enable you if you would submit to the Word of God. If you're struggling with your marriage, all the help you need is right here. It is here. God has given us the exact instruction that we need. And as you, as you grasp it, as you seek to understand it, and as you apply it, then God will move within your marriage and you'll experience marriage as God intended. If you are His child, I hope you believe that. Be a man or woman of faith. God will move by His Spirit through His Word. But to experience that, that right perspective, to, to have a marriage as God's designed it to be, we have to understand the foundation. We have to know why. Why did God create marriage? What is its purpose? What did He intend to do through it? God created marriage, and we're going to look at two specific foundations. There are many reasons, but I, I want to focus in on what I think are, the Scripture shows are two most important, the two most foundational reasons or purposes for marriage, and that is God designed marriage for Christ, and He designed marriage for companionship. God made marriages to glorify His Son and to produce or provide deep human friendship. So let's, let's look at the first one. God designed marriage, created marriage for Christ. You know, glorifying God is where everything begins, right? How often do we talk about that? How often do we hear that? We must glorify God in everything we do. In fact, Paul ended the first half of the letter to the Ephesians with the words, To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whatever then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all what to the glory of God. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And then interestingly enough, Paul goes to marriage right after that. We hear this a lot, though. We're to glorify God in all that we do. And, you know, at times I think we can kind of treat that idea as, that, you know, it's our spiritual box. And when we're here with one another, we're doing good deeds or something like that. We, we pull this glorifying God out of the box. But then when we get home, we stick it back in the box. And oh, how many trials in marriage or any relationship for that matter. Oh, how many would be solved or go away if we truly lived out this principle in our home. If we truly lived this out among one another. Because if your chief aim in your marriage was really to honor Christ, if that was your real goal, if that was your foundational purpose, then you will have joy and satisfaction no matter what the other person does. Do you believe that? If your true contentment, if your true joy is in Jesus Christ, 
then you will be able to not just endure what's going on in your marriage, you will actually still have joy and satisfaction. That doesn't mean that there won't be pain and sorrow. That doesn't mean that the things that may have been done to you or your spouse is doing to you don't hurt. But you can still find contentment because you know and love Christ and because it's Him that you're trying to please. We can't be reminded enough that the the main reason to marry is not for love, it's not for riches, it's not for happiness, but it's primarily to honor Christ. And this truth is, Paul weaves this truth all through these 12 verses that he talks about marriage here in Ephesians 5. In fact, did you notice how many times that Christ and his bride, the church, are mentioned here? He talks about, uh, he refers to husbands and wives about 10 times each, if you also include uh, pronouns that refer to them. But he mentions Christ and his church 12 times each, including pronouns. So in a passage that is focused on marriage, Jesus and his bride are brought up 20% more than husbands and wives. That's kind of odd, isn't it? Why, why so much focus when, when Paul's talking here about human marriage, isn't he? Why, why so much focus on Jesus? Because it's all about him. Marriage is all about Jesus. In the end, right, he's the center. He's the focus. He's the reference point in our marriage and in our whole life. Colossians 3, 4, Christ who is our life. Paul communicates this idea, this focus, this centrality of the Lord Jesus in marriage, not only through the frequency with which he mentions Jesus in the church, but also what he says, the the very statements he makes within this text. In fact, look back at verse 21. What's the motivating factor in mutual submission? He says they're being subject to one another in fear of Christ. I'm to serve you in humility out of respect for my Lord and Savior, out of a a desire to worship Christ because I have an awe for him, because of a deep reverence for Jesus. And then in verse 22, he says, Wives, being subject to your husbands as to the Lord. Again, Lord here is a reference to Christ. Wives are to see the authority of their husbands as from Jesus. Colossians 3.18 says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting, proper, appropriate to the Lord. In the Lord, excuse me. Again, it is Christ who is in view here, right? He is the reason that you submit. He is the one ultimately that you are submitting to. And Paul reinforces that in verse 24 when he says, As this church is subject to Christ, so wives ought to be to their husbands. And then he turns to the husbands in verse 25 and he says, Love your wives. How? What's the reference point? Fellas, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And then in verse 29, husbands are to nourish and cherish their wives just as Christ also does to his bride. So these statements in in the fear of Christ, as to the Lord, just as Christ, they tell us again, marriage is all about Jesus. He is the standard of how we treat our spouse. He is who we need to be concerned about pleasing. He is the one that we answer to, and it is his reputation that matters most. You honor your husband because Jesus calls you to. You love your wife because Jesus loves his. Your marriage is not about getting what you want out of it, but it exists for the purpose of putting the Son of God on display. Sometimes that means things, things are not going to go how you want them to go. Sometimes that means that your spouse is going to be unkind or unloving, bitter, angry, hateful, 
selfish, distant, nagging, unfaithful, inattentive, harsh. Sometimes that means that your spouse will sin against you even in horrible ways. But listen, in those moments, you need to remember this. Jesus will get glory in how you respond if you respond in a godly way, even if your spouse is not. 1 Peter 2.21 says as much, You've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example to follow in His steps. He's not just talking about persecution for evangelism there. Right before, He was talking about human relationships and submission to, uh, to one another, submission to masters and servants, submission to the government. Right after that, He talks about marriage. Beloved, listen carefully to this. You must, you must have the firm conviction that you exist for Christ's glory and His satisfaction and not your own. You must have a firm conviction that you exist for the glory and satisfaction and pleasure of Jesus Christ, not your own. That is what will carry you through those difficult times in marriage. That is what will carry you through any difficult time in life. I exist to honor and exalt and worship Christ. You have to embrace that. That's when you will sacrifice. That is why you will sacrifice when it is hard. That's that's why you'll act contrary to your desires. That's what will sustain you in the hard times. That is why you will forgive. That is why you will overcome evil for good. You will do it for Jesus. Because... And you know this, especially those that you've been married for a while. You don't know what's going to happen in your marriage. Things come up that you completely did not expect. Your spouse may struggle with depression or or drugs or be unfaithful to you. You you may have to deal in your marriage with hormonal issues. In fact, I can almost guarantee it. (laughs) Or wayward children, not just ladies either. Guys uh, have hormonal issues. (laughs) You may have wayward children. You may lose your home. I don't know what trial will come your way, but you will probably experience many, many significant trials. There are no guarantees, right? There are just no guarantees. And the only way that you're going to not just survive those times, but even actually grow through them and grow in them, is if the honor and exaltation of Christ is your chief aim. These, this is not just spiritual flowery talk that, you know, in Sunday morning, okay, it's all about Jesus and, you know... No, it is all about Jesus. It is. When pleasing my Savior is what matters to me more than anything else, you've got it. You've got it. Again, marriage is all about Him. And Paul makes this clear in just about every verse in this text. He talks about Jesus. At the end of his instruction on marriage... Here in this passage, he then draws the curtain back a little further. He opens up the window to God's eternal design and his eternal purpose in marriage. And you know, as he does, what he reveals is so profound, it boggles the mind. Up to verse 30, things appear to be moving along pretty clearly. Paul frequently refers to Christ and to the church as an example, an illustration, it seems, for the relationship between husband and wife. 
Verses 28 to 32, he, he addresses how husbands are to treat their wives by recognizing the, the unique nature of the marital bond between them. And we're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks. And then Paul gives the analogy, as in previous verses, where he talks about the husband's need to care for their wives as their own body. Talks about that because Christ cares for his own body, us, the church. So he seems to, again, be continuing on the illustration he's been using. And then in verse 31, he even throws in the foundational text on marriage from Genesis 2, 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. At first blush, this seems reasonable, right? He's been talking about husbands, love your wives, cherish them as your own bodies, even using the term flesh uh, in verse 29. So it would seem natural that Paul would bring up this passage in Genesis 2 to to nail that point home. Not exactly. Things take an unexpected turn. If you just think about what specifically is Paul referring to in verse 31? Is he referring back to husband and wife in the beginning of verse 29? One could make a, a strong case for that. He's been talking about the relationship between husband and wife through this whole section. Here he's been talking about specifically a husband loving his wife as his own body. So Genesis 2.24 would be a a fitting summary to that argument. But then Paul throws a wrench into the whole thing in verse 32 when he says, This mystery is great. I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. What? Wait a minute. Are we talking about marriage here? Didn't you just bring up what Moses said about marriage in Genesis 2? Where's Jesus in that? I don't see Jesus in Genesis 2. Are you playing fast and loose with your hermeneutics here, Paul? Are you, are you reading something in to this passage Moses wrote that Moses didn't intend? So does verse 31 refer to human marriage? Or does it refer to this unique bond or, or union with Christ and his church? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Herein lies the mystery. This is what Paul is is trying to unfold. Again, remember, mystery is something that that was not known before. It's not something that you could discover on your own. It's something that God had to reveal. He talks about that back in Genesis, uh, Genesis, excuse me, in Ephesians 3. Paul referred to the mystery there, and he said in verse 3, This revelation was made known to me by the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known, but has now been revealed through his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. So a mystery is uh, something that God has to disclose. It's something that God has to reveal. In Genesis, uh, Genesis, Ephesians, Ephesians 3. Paul then talks about the mystery there in Ephesians 3 is the mystery of the fact that God has brought Jew and Gentile together as one. He says in verse 6, to be specific, the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So here that mystery is, again, the bringing together of Jew and Gentile into one body. Back in chapter 1, Paul talks about a mystery and the mystery of God's plan to bring together the entire universe under submission to Christ. Or in Ephesians 6, 17, he refers to the gospel, the mystery of the gospel. So is the mystery here in Ephesians 5 one of those, the gospel of grace, or, or the mystery of, of the church and God bringing uh, the Jew and Gentile together as one? Or is the mystery here referring to God's plan to rule through Christ? 
Or is the mystery instead what, what Paul seems to be referring to explicitly here, that, that it's in reference to Christ and the church? And if, if it is solely referring to the union between Jesus and his bride, does that mean that, that really this whole text isn't focused on marriage so much, it's focused on Jesus and his church? And if that's so, then, then how is this helpful as a practical application for my marriage? Have I made it confusing enough? <laughs> Seen some people, what? Where are you going? Well, the mystery here, let me try to explain it. It's not just the intimate union, the, the mystical union, as one hymn describes it, between Jesus and the church. Nor is it that that union is an illustration of human marriage. But rather, the mystery is the connection between human marriage and between the bond of Jesus and his church. Paul's saying here that Christ and his bride are, are more than an illustration of marriage. Actually, it's more like the other way around. The, the mystery is that God did not create the union of Christ and the church after the pattern of marriage, but that he created marriage after the pattern of the union in Christ and his church. And this is something, think about this a minute. Put yourself in day six of creation. God's creating Adam, then he created Eve. And when he brought those two together in that first marriage, in his mind, was not just a blessing of that human relationship, but he was looking far beyond to his son and his relationship with us, the church. And so he created marriage as an analogy, as, a, as an illustration of that deep and abiding relationship Jesus would have with his bride. Think about that. From eternity, God had that in view. John Piper said this, Marriage is like a metaphor or an image or a picture. It stands for something more than a man and a woman becoming one flesh. It stands for the relationship between Christ and the church. That's the deepest meaning of marriage. It is meant to be a living drama of how Christ and the church relate to each other. God made human marriage as a reflection of Christ's own eternal marriage with his church. You know what's going to happen before Jesus returns in Revelation 19? Do you know what we're going to be doing together? Having a marriage feast. We're going to have a marriage feast. The, the wedding will take place. And then Christ will come and destroy His enemies. Marriage finds its identity and meaning and purpose in Christ's relationship with His bride. Now you be thinking maybe at this point, okay, you know, that's, that's interesting. I, I think I kind of get a little more understanding of what, what He's talking about with mystery here. But, but how does knowing this help me stop fighting with my wife? How does knowing this help me to, to live with my husband in a, in a more intimate way, to live with him in a manner that's more honoring to Jesus? How, how does this help me get through the day of laundry and diapers? Ray Ortland, Raymond Ortland says this, The church Christ parallel is not merely illustrative, but the generating theological center of his entire presentation. In other words, he's saying the better that you understand, the better that you grasp, the better that you embrace the relationship Jesus has with his church, with you, then the more you will understand and the more you will be motivated to have a Christ-honoring marriage. Do you get that? The better you understand the relationship Jesus has with his bride, then the more that you will be encouraged and understand the relationship that you're to have with yours or your husband. Do you focus on Christ, how he considers his bride, how he feels about her, how she has responded to respond to him, how she feels about him? 
then you will be equipped to emulate that in your own marriage. That's what Paul's been getting at here the whole time. Husbands, treat your bride like Christ treats his. Wives, treat your husband as the church is to treat hers. Again, your marriage is a picture, a copy. It's a living parable to your children, to your extended family, to your neighbors, to the world of how Jesus cares for his bride and how she is to care for him. It's a it's a picture of the gospel. It's a a living picture of the gospel as you love unconditionally. Even a spouse in the time that sins against you, as you love unconditionally, people can see Christ's unconditional love through that. She did what to you and you. He said what? And you're still you forgave him. As you forgive sins against you, the beauty of God's grace and forgiveness is revealed to the lost. As there's respectful submission to loving sacrificial leadership in your home, do you know what that gives? That gives the world, gives your children, gives those who see and know and, 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 and are involved in your lives, it gives them a picture. It gives them a, it makes the gospel attractive. Wow, I know how hard marriage is and, and look at theirs and I want that. How did you get there? It's Jesus. It's the Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we, we have a privilege. This is an honor that we've been given to actually make the gospel, to adorn it, to make it attractive to the lost. And you think about Olympic athletes, right? What's the greatest honor that an Olympic athlete can have? To carry their flag, right? To carry the nation's flag in front of their teammates, opening ceremony, before the world, really, the world watching. I mean, how motivating would that be? How humbling would that be? How much more would that athlete then want to, to, uh, to give their all for their country? And, and to think that Jesus, in a sense, it's a poor illustration, but in a sense, he's, he's given us his flag to carry before the world. And that flag has two wedding rings on it to live out the gospel in our marriage. But to get there, we have a problem. We have to deal with what I like to call the monarch complex. And that is, the monarch complex is this attitude that says, I am king in my house, that my home revolves around me, that others exist for my benefit, that what I want is what should happen. That's the monarch complex. Because we all have expectations, right? Right? Yes. Okay, make sure there's no liars in here. Yes, we all do. We all expect things. We all have certain desires. And when those expectations aren't met, then we have, met, then we have the temptation for the, to have this monarch complex come out. Right? How dare my spouse not treat me the way I want? How dare they sin against me? How, how dare they question my judgment? As marriage counselor Paul Tripp likes to point out, we all tend to have three kings in our home. You, your spouse, and Jesus. And then if you have kids, there's several more. But that's our tendency. But, but there can only be one king, right? We can only have one king in our house. And you need to make a conscious decision every day. Is Jesus going to be king in my home or am I? Every day we need to make that conscious decision. Are you going to choose to reflect his relationship with his church or to demand your own? How you answer that question is going to determine if you have a marriage that's purpose is primarily to honor Christ. 
Again, because marriage is for Christ. That's the first goal. That's the primary goal. That's the foundational goal. We don't get that. We don't get anything else. Read all the marriage books you want. They're not going to help. See all the counselors you want. They're not going to help. If Jesus Christ and his glory and his honor and exalting him isn't the reason that you're married, nothing will help. Nothing. Let's look at the second goal briefly. That marriage is not just created to exalt Christ. That's the foundation. But the next layer right on top of that is God made marriage for companionship. God designed marriage not only to reflect that bond between Christ and his church, but also for a blessing. God wants it to be a blessing. We see that in what led up to the first wedding in Genesis 2. Let's go back there. I know many of you are familiar with this text, but let's go back to Genesis 2 for a moment and and look at this first marriage because within it we see purpose for which God designed it. Genesis one twenty seven tells us uh, uh, on the sixth day that God created man in his own image, in the image of God who created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So on the sixth day of creation, God makes a man, makes a woman, and then he tells them, make babies, lots of babies. And then he says, not only that, not only were they brought together to populate the earth, but he also says, I have a job for you to subdue the earth together. They were given this task. But even that doesn't reveal fully why God designed the marital union. That is what we find out about in Genesis 2. Again, some people get confused as to these two accounts in Genesis 1 and 2 on the creation of of Adam and Eve and that uh, they think that they're two different accounts, that they're con- contradicting one another. But, but Genesis 1 was written as an overview. Genesis 1, uh, Moses hits the highlights in creation. And then in day 6, he talks about man and woman being created. In chapter 2, he wants to unfold and give more detail of what happened on that sixth day. For the express purpose of this, this is how Moses ends Genesis 2. For this reason, for what I just told you about, we're going to look at it in a minute, This is why a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and become one flesh. Because again, remember, who is Moses writing to here? Initially, he's writing to the people of Israel, right? In the Exodus, about 1,400 years before Jesus. And they saw marriages happening all around them. And so God, through his spirit, reveals to Moses, this is the foundation, this is the purpose of why you see all this going on around you. This is why you see a man leave his father and mother and a woman leave her parents and they come together and they join together as a new family in this special relationship. Here's why. Let's go back to verse 18 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So why does God bring the animals by? Did he run out of names? Adam, I've named all the stars and there's there's trillions of them. I've run out of names. I'm going to need your help on this one. Here's some ant. No, of course not, right? He did bring the animals by to name them, but there was something more important that God wanted to show Adam here. Notice the three key statements. It is not good. There was something in creation uh, that was not yet the way God wanted it. 
It was not good for the man to be alone. That was the something. Adam was by himself. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. That was God's solution to bring someone for Adam. That word helper means a a person who gives assistance or support or to provide what is lacking. The Old Testament, actually, it was usually used to help someone out who was in trouble, which that sounds about right, doesn't it, ladies? (laughs) Suitable is the idea of corresponding to, just like him. So put these together, the ideas, a a helper, an assistant who is his equal, a, a helper equal and adequate to himself. So in bringing the animals before Adam, what is it that God wanted Adam to see? What is it that he wanted Adam to realize? As these animal, animals are parading by different shapes and colors and designs, something dawned on him, didn't it? As he walked by, Adam realized, I, I can't interact with these creatures. I can't talk with them. We can't have a conversation. We don't share the same kinds of emotions. Yeah, they acknowledge that I'm here, and, and some of them, when I speak, they look at me, but they don't talk to me. I, I can't take the, the lion aside and, and talk about his beautiful mane or his sharp teeth. Or, or I can't talk to the brontosaurus over here. And yes, there were brontosaurus when Adam was around. I can't talk to the brontosaurus. Man, you are huge. He wouldn't understand that. I can't, I can't talk to the giraffe and ask him how his, his, his head is able to be held up by that long neck. It structurally doesn't look like it makes sense. You know, the, the hyenas did laugh at a few of my jokes, but that's about it. Got no, no interaction. I, you know, Adam realized something. Adam realized what became crystal clear to him was that I, I'm alone. I'm alone here. Look at Genesis 2.21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Right? So God sees the problem. God helps Adam to see the problem. Then he knocks Adam out, performs the first surgery in history, takes literally, it says, a piece out of his side, probably a rib. And from that, he forms Eve. And then Adam wakes up and he sees her. And boy, the English translations just don't do this justice. I mean, the excitement that he conveys here, actually he gives the first recorded poem in human history in verse 23 when he says this, At last, this one is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman because out of man, this one was taken. He repeats this idea. This one, this one, her, her, look, look, look. She's like me. I can interact with her. We can talk. We share the same kinds of emotions. We can live life together. I can build a family with her. We can share experiences with one another. We can learn about each other. We can grow together. You see, God designed marriage for companionship. For a special relationship to be shared between man and woman. Because if, if the primary goal here was to, to create more humans, God could have chosen another fa- way to do that. If the primary goal here was to subdue the earth, 
Well, God could have created a, a bigger ox, right? They, they plow fields better than another human. Or, or God could have had the T-Rex be his assistant. They would subdue the earth much more easily than another human, right? But God brought Eve. The key here was to bring a helper corresponding to Adam, someone like him, someone who could be his friend. Both Proverbs 2.17 and Malachi 2.13 also describe husband and wife as companions, as partners, as friends. That's how Moses sums it up, that the two become one. And I think a better way to state that is the two are one. At the time that those vows are made, God sees man and that woman as as one person. They're glued together. And so, thinking about this, if the purpose of marriage, following glorifying the Lord Jesus, but the primary way that we do that is how we reflect our marriage as a companionship. If that's the purpose of marriage, to, to be friends, to be companions, then it begs the question, what are you doing to cultivate that companionship? And guys, this falls on you. Are you making time with your wives? Are you taking her out for dates or walks together? Are you cultivating a mutual hobby with her? Do you talk with her on a consistent basis? And I don't just mean about the work of the day. Are you making any effort to share your life with her? Now, wait a minute, Tim. Why are you talking to us? I mean, aren't... Aren't women more relational? Aren't they more capable of, of cultivating this kind of a relationship? And yeah, they are more relational. But God has designed you to lead and initiate. He's designed your wives. He's created them to follow and respond. And if you're thinking, I don't know how to cultivate my friendship, we've kind of grown a little distant. I, you can cheat and ask your wife. You can do that. And ladies, in that moment... Don't say, well, it's about time. (laughs) That doesn't work. That doesn't work. And when they ask you, don't say, well, well, you should know. That doesn't work either. You're correct. We should know, but we're idiots. So help us out. Yeah, you're welcome, bro. Uh, You know, but ask. It's okay. Say, honey, I I realize that we need to have a closer companionship. I'm not cultivating it as I should. Uh, What are some ways that I can do that? think your wives would love to hear that but you need to take the initiative you need to make the effort and ladies wait don't use this as an opportunity and initiate yourselves you can do what i often call tina has a secret weapon my wife she prays when i'm out of line she prays and lets god work on me you can do that too ladies if there's a struggle in your relationship go to god with it in faith And fellas, don't let the busyness or the grind of life push out time with your wife. If the love in your marriage, if the affection has grown cold, why do you think that is? God made your marriage for companionship, right? God intends for you to be intimate partners, friends, not acquaintances, not roommates, not co-workers, not business partners, not child care providers. Your man and wife, your lovers, your confidants, your friends. What's getting in the way? What is hindering that? Take a moment now and think about one thing. Just pick one thing that you know is getting in the way of cultivating that relationship, that companionship with your spouse. I'm serious. Think of one thing. And then 
Take one more step. Ask your spouse. Honey, is there something that, that you see in my life that really has gotten in the way of, of us growing closer together? And again, don't use this opportunity to pull out, well, yeah, there's a couple of things I got here. Let's see, number one. Just, just look at the first one and be gracious to one another. Your spouse may, have, may be completely neglectful in this. Be gracious. Again, your marriage is to be a picture of the gospel. You have the grace and patience and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ with your spouse. Again, make companionship and attention to your bride your full effort. Jesus gives his bride full attention, doesn't he? So should we. Martin Luther, of all people, Martin Luther said this, There's no more lovely, friendly, and charming relationship, communion, or company than a good marriage. See, Martin Luther came to realize what Peter described marriage as the grace of life. And I think he came to realize that because he understood the purpose for which God designed marriage for the glory of Christ and for companionship. And it's to that end that that I hope as we pray and meditate and think about the things that Paul reveals to us in this text, that we too would pursue genuinely a marriage that is for Christ and for companionship. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for for marriage. Lord, I know it's for probably all of us, Lord, at times, if not ongoing, been a source of pain and discouragement and trial. Lord, living with another sinner is is hard, especially someone that's supposed to love you and care for you more than anyone else. Lord, I, I just pray for the marriages here at Calvary. God, for the many that are, are struggling, that, that, Lord, you would invade our homes and that you would move us to seek to honor Christ in our, in our homes, in our marriages especially. And Lord, we need you to do that. We cannot do it on our own. Help us, Lord, to be filled by your Spirit that he may live through us and work through us, have a marriage that, that honors your desire to reflect Christ and his bride and also to be deep friends, companions for life. In Jesus' name, amen.